And welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, young English stars are in high demand on the continent, with Bayern Munich the latest big club to come after a talented Premier League kid in Callum Hudson-Odoi. We assess why the big names of the future seem to be keen to establish their long-term future on foreign shores. We told you last week that Maurizio Pochettino was facing up to a change in Spurs transfer policy that could well have grave repercussions for what he wants to achieve in North London. Now that the Argentine boss has responded in a blockbusting press conference, we analyse what it all means for his future at the club. And... We look at the situation unfolding at Chelsea around Cesc Fabregas and explain why it's emblematic of the power and influence of director Marina Granovskaya in the club's transfer dealings. Okay, guys, well, we're going to start off with a topic uh, close to most people's hearts, which is the development of young uh, native English players. And it seems now that there's a trend with players who want to go abroad. And the latest is Chelsea player Callum Hodson-Odoi. What's the latest on this potential move to Bayern Munich? Yeah, the latest, Johnny, is that um, Bayern Munich's interest has increased on an almost daily basis uh, in Hudson-Odoi. It's um, it's strange that a club like Bayern Munich of, of their enormity um, will up their bid at, uh, almost every two or three days. They started off uh, bidding twelve million pounds. That's increased to fifteen to eighteen. Uh, it suddenly went to twenty five about a week ago. And my information from contacts both in in Germany and at Stamford Bridge is that they have now made an offer which would, would include add-ons. We should stress that, but could exceed thirty million pounds. Should indeed. Chelsea agree to that fee. With Hudson Odoi, again, contacts tell me that he is unsure about moving to the Bundesliga. However, his priority, and it can be well understood for a player who's 18 years old and has bided his time uh, waiting to break into the Chelsea first team, despite being very highly rated by their academy staff and indeed the, the coaches at the club. Um, he wants to play football, simple as that. Um, Bayern are offering him that and he is effectively from what I can um, see holding a gun to Chelsea's head he's effectively saying look I, I have um, 18 months left in my current contract I want to play football if you cannot give me that then I will leave however if you offer me assurances about my opportunities to play first team football then I'll consider signing a new contract at Chelsea. And remember, Chelsea have a um, policy of re-signing um, young players uh, within the club before sending them out on loan. Uh, in Hudson-Odoi's case, that's not, I think, the track he wants to go down. He wants to stay and play football in the first team. And um, as I said, effectively, he's kind of forcing their hand and saying, OK, I have this offer from Bayern Munich. I'm very tempted by it. Do you really want to lose me to one of your European competitors at this stage of my career? Now, looking from the outside in, this is a trend. Jadon Sancho left Manchester City uh, and went to Borussia Dortmund and is excelling there. As we saw, Bram Diaz was um, 
paraded at uh, Santiago Bernabeu uh, on Monday of this week. I, I saw that Duncan Castles broke on the Transfer Window podcast. So why is it that young English players are exiting what's supposed to be, and we're told on a week-by-week basis, the best league in the world, in order to go play on foreign shores? Not that I think is a bad thing, because if they're going to play football, then they should. But... Um, I think, Duncan, I'll put it, oh, I'd ask you, Duncan, do you think that foreign clubs now, especially even the, the elite clubs like Bayern Munich, Dortmund, I think, who are top of the business league, you could include them in that bracket, and Real Madrid, are looking for value with young players in England because, conversely, when English clubs buy young players in, example, one Leroy Zane, um, who was bought for, I think, in excess of £40 million, pounds, um, when it goes the other way, the price is much higher. So it looks like they're looking for value in the market by coming to England. If it's value in the market, it's it's a high price they're paying. I mean, the the, the money we're talking about for Hudson Odoi is a serious transfer fee um, for a player of his age and experience. Um, but what it tells you is that there's a you know there's been a a step shift in the perception of the quality of English talent, English nationals at, at top Premier League clubs. And also um, the the general players, so the players like Brahim Diaz that English clubs have bought in from Spain, for example, or elsewhere in Europe uh, and trained up, are now perceived as being worthy of paying what essentially you would, would if, if you'd said five years ago, a Bayern Munich were going, to, were going to offer over 30 million for an 18-year-old kid from Chelsea's academy who had barely played in the first team. He just laughed at the idea. Um, even Brahim Diaz's transfer is fascinating in that they, they could Madrid could have had the player for essentially nothing in terms of transfer cost, i.e. just um, a couple of hundred thousand euros of um, training compensation in the summer. But they've decided to put down, I'm told, 17 million euros um, as a guaranteed fee um, with bonuses on top of that and to pay the player two and a half million net a year. Um, to bring that transfer forward to the January window. Um, and uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. Diaz wanted to come now. Um, Pep Guardiola also made it clear that if he was going to leave Manchester City, um, then he wanted him out now. He didn't want him hanging around for six months. And I think it also suited Real Madrid from a PR point of view to be able to say, look, we are signing someone in the January window while things aren't going particularly well for the club and he is um, a highly regarded young Spanish player. So they've been prepared to put extra money down to make that happen now. Um, But to go back to the point on the quality of English talent, I was talking to a few people about this um, the past week and and was asking them um, where do they think these players, the top teenagers from the Premier League, English players are now. And they said, two people said to me, they're as good technically as the Spanish players are, but they're physically better. Um, So they are obvious choices if you can get the kids with the right mentality. The only question they have about them is is the mentality because they're paid so well um, to be acquired by clubs like Chelsea um, and Manchester City and Liverpool. Manchester United, and they have so much money at young age, and they're they can often be very protected by the club, um, and and struggle to um, develop that potential into real ability because of that, and and that that's the doubt people have. But I think Jaden Sancho has has set a marker down 
by being prepared to go to Germany to get first-team football because he felt he wasn't going to get first-team football at Manchester City. And putting up the numbers he, he has so far, so he's um, looking at earlier, he's got 19 goals or assists in 29 Bundesliga appearances in, in the, you know, the season and a half he's been over there, which is substantially better um, than Christian Pulisic's return uh, for Borussia Dortmund in, in the same period. And Pulisic, as we know, has just moved to Chelsea for 64 million euros. So Sancho's demonstrated that some of these players have got it. They're, also, you should note that Sancho, Hudson-Odoi, um, Phil Foden, they all come from a cohort that won the Under-17 World Cup. Um, so proved themselves on the top stage, on the top kind of scouting stage for the, ma- the major clubs um, by beating the best teams in the world. Uh, and I think that that's probably the most interesting thing about all of this is the perception of young English ta- talent has changed. And then the question is now going to be, will the Chelsea's, will the Manchester City's um, have to change their policy of of developing the players in their own first team, um, or or risk losing more of them um, overseas because that that is also a theme that, that that's happening because the guys in the academy are, have seen Sancho go across, they see Bayern um, bidding for Hudson Odoi, they see Brahim Diaz going to Real Madrid, and they're thinking, well, uh, you know, they're all they're all getting big moves to big clubs so I should be able to get a big move to a big club as well and it doesn't matter that I haven't played much in the first team because that doesn't seem to count anymore because Bayern, Bayern, Borussia Dortmund, Real Madrid are prepared to buy um, players of my age who I've trained with, who I've played in international competitions against um, without me having experience in the first team. It strikes me as ironic Duncan that that, um, their own clubs and by that being permanent clubs have almost been blindfolded to the fact that um, football association teams at under 16, 17, 18, 21 and 20, uh, 21 level, under 21 level, have been European or world champions over the last four years and that their academy kids have been absolutely crucial to that success. And yet, and Phil Foden is a brilliant example of this, having played all the way through the, that England setup, <clears throat> can't get a starting place regularly um, in the Premier League. Now, the the normal excuse for this is, well, success comes at a very high cost in the Premier League because of the riches um, in the broadcast uh, um, rights as well as the prestige um, value to the club of winning the Premier League and playing Champions League. And other countries have a much better, uh, certainly a much more... Um, certainly recent tradition of introducing young players into their first teams um, at the age of 17, 18 than England has. Uh, and you can see that in the statistics of um, average age of players who play X amount of minutes uh, over the last 10 years in the Premier League. Ian, is, uh, that, is that fundamentally the problem, that the player pathway is broken at these big yes, clubs? it is, Johnny. It is. <clears throat> I mean, look, we don't have to look at the, 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 uh, the, the fact that Clubs like Chelsea and Manchester City have effectively stockpiled young players. Chelsea currently have 37 players out on loan throughout England and Europe um, who they're hoping might turn into better players than they thought they had when they bought them. But they keep them on long-term contracts. And then they will, if they don't turn out to be suitable for first-team football at Chelsea, then they sell them on. 
and you know Nathan Aki is a very good example who went to Bournemouth for twenty million pounds. And look, this is this is a business. It's a business venture. Chelsea's average net spend in the last ten years is under thirty-four million pounds per year. And you ask yourself, well, how that how can that be when they continue to break the transfer record? We saw them buy Kepa for seventy-two million. They buy Jorginho as well this season. Um, they've got someone like Morata who's earning £200,000 a week and came for uh, a club record signing at the time. But the fact is they keep turning over these younger players and selling them for £7, 8 12 20 million pounds and they sell them a lot and then they bring more in. And Manchester City do the same. Other clubs do the same but not on the same scale. So <clears throat> someone who always argued about the benefit of playing competitive football um, <clears throat> was Frank Lampard uh, who said that his spell at Swansea City was what made him the player he became because he had to play alongside guys who literally needed the win bonus to pay their mortgages. Um, now, I know this sounds very old school and we're going back 15, 20 years here, but the bottom line is the academy system in England is very, very cosseted. Uh, you earn 20 to 40 grand a week um, just playing under 23s or under 21s football. You're, you've got brilliant facilities and the notion that, and you buy a lovely car and your parents are well looked after and everything else. But getting into the first team is very difficult. And some players, I think, find it difficult to break out of, of that cocoon and test themselves. What we're seeing now is players like Sancho and certainly Diaz, Hudson Adoy is, we're waiting to find out if he makes the break or not. They're, they're, they're determined, but their choices are not Swansea City or in uh, Rio Ferdinand's case, he went to Bournemouth on loan. Their choices are Bayern Munich or Real Madrid. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. But just shows you how far the academy system has come. But the clubs haven't actually realised the money they've invested can be turned into first-team players. A big talking point in last week's podcast was Maurizio Pochettino and his struggles with Spurs. Uh, given that they are now changing their transfer policy. Duncan talked in a great detail about what was happening there, and uh, we had a lot of good feedback on that. This week, Maurizio Pochettino has come out in a press conference and addressed the issues, um, talking about whether or not he could spend the next 20 years at Tottenham. Were you convinced, Duncan? Um, look, I think Maurizio Pochettino was... Um as he often is in these press conferences, quite skilled in uh, stating his argument in a way that will appeal to the Tottenham Hotspur fans in the sense he was talking about the idea of staying at Tottenham for 20 years and um, saying that uh, he'd no doubt that the, the line Daniel Levy was taking the club down in terms of investing in the stadium would turn Tottenham into one of the greatest clubs in Europe um, over that time scale. Asking the question of whether he would be around to do it, um, how long it would actually take, and, and um, throwing in lines about Arsene Wenger and uh, what happened to Arsene Wenger's reputation when he was placed in what Pochettino was clearly uh, trying to draw parallels with and saying Arsenal invested heavily in their stadium uh, in building that new stadium. They stopped spending on transfers um, they moved towards a policy of buying younger players and bringing them through to try and, and compensate for the their, for missing out on the superstars that they had been signing previously. You know, it worked um, famously with individuals like Cesc Fabregas, 
but over the course, it ultimately hurt the team. And and Pochettino was pointing out how much damage it had done to Wenger's reputation and the way in which he left the club. And I, and I think for anyone who um, was ready to read between the lines, and um, I think Real Madrid and Manchester United would be very keen to read between those lines, um, it was Pochettino saying, um, I have doubts about this. Um, I don't know if this is the right place for me to be. Um, so if, uh, if Daniel Levy wants me to stay here and be the guy who um, turns the club into one of the biggest teams in Europe, then um, maybe he has to reconsider his transfer policy. I think that's that's the message in there. It's you know we all know Manchester United are very keen on Pochettino. We know Real Madrid offered him the job in the summer. We know Pochettino wanted to go in the summer, and Levy blocked that move. So as we said in the podcast that I did in the in the transfer window column in the in the Daily Record, he's almost in a unique position of having the two biggest clubs in world football in terms of revenue, um, trying to hire him at the same time. And, and that's immense leverage um, for any manager to have. And uh, I think what you see him doing now is applying that leverage um, and trying to ascertain where Tottenham are um, uh, and whether they will be prepared to help him out in terms of giving him the players he wants, not going down this um, transfer uh, strategy of of, not, of stopping buying experienced players like Ore. Um and uh, and Lucas Moura and going back to um, trying to pick off uh, young talents, good young, top young talents from around the world like Son and Ericsson and developing them through and, and, and basically conceding defeat on the idea of winning the Premier League because that's, you know, internally that is the thinking. They don't think they have the finances to properly compete with the top clubs. So they need to be more realistic about it in this, in this period uh, while they're dealing with the excessive costs uh, and the additional, huge additional cost that the stadium ha- has imposed upon them. Um, and, and as I said, there's a recognition within the club that that might cost them Pochettino's um, presence next season. And, and I think over the next few months, we're going to see this story play out. And, and it doesn't, it clearly doesn't have a definite resolution at this point. Um, but um, as I say, Pochettino's playing his cards, putting the pressure on, and will come to the decision he thinks is best for him down the line. Um, obviously, he has to take into account the fact that Levy, if he does decide to leave, Levy will make it very, very expensive for him to leave. Um, but that, that's the scenario. That's where we're going at Tottenham Hotspur at present. Ian, the number one quote in there, once you actually look at what he's actually said, um, pick it apart, and there's one thing that stands out, and it's this. He says... We're doing a fantastic job, but if we want to be real contenders, we need to operate in a different way in the future. Pochettino has been very clever. Um, he is not someone who um, openly declares war on his club and agitates uh, to get his way, unlike um, the way that some coaches behave. Uh, he does it subtly, <clears throat> and the more sort of, um, let's just say, the, the, the Spurs fans who um, are not blinded by allegiance to the club, but are uh, more astute at reading situations, will know themselves that this has been a shot across the bows um, by Pochettino with regards to how his time at Spurs plays out. Like, the fact is, he mentions, would I like to stay? Yes. 
Is it my wish and my desire to stay for 20 years? Yes, it is. However, I saw what happened to Arsene Wenger at, at Arsenal. Now, the fact he even includes Arsene Wenger and his time at Arsenal and, and those agonising you know, 10 years without a trophy, etc., <clears throat> is a big, big flashing warning light, I think, because you don't introduce that into the narrative unless you have um, a major point to e explicate in terms of what you're trying to say without saying it blatantly. Um, I think Duncan's right. I think uh, Daniel Leverage will be absolutely key <laughs> in this um, with regards to Pochettino's future. But um, what's most interesting to me is that Duncan's briefing regarding um, the future transfer policy of Spurs and the way that it will go back to the way it was before when Pochettino came in, where you uh, recruit under the radar, you you um, progress and um, you make players better through coaching, uh, young players as well coming through the academy, and then you produce a team on the pitch which can uh, rival the the big guns, the big spenders in the Premier League, like Manchester City, like Manchester, like Chelsea, and recently like Liverpool, as Spurs have, um, then <clears throat> I think Pochettino's <clears throat> message is very clear. And that is, um, we can't regress. We can't go back to the way it was when I was here uh, in the beginning five years ago. We have to at least make an effort to compete for big players and I think not just for him, but for the players who are in that that dressing room as well. They want to see players come in who they know can absolutely not answer their mobile phones while the podcast is going on. That's uh, that's an alarm. That's the fire alarm here at uh, <laughs> Commercial Key in Glasgow. So hopefully I won't see any smoke piling under the podcast Indeed. room's door. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Very good. Sorry, Ian. Did I, reach, I re rewind about 30 seconds? Yes. So, um, so as as I said, you know, it's interesting that the alarm went off in Glasgow just as it did in Pochettino's office when uh, he found out <laughs> about the, uh, the the regression and transfer policy. <sighs> this is a massive moment for Tottenham Hotspur. They're moving to this new stadium, which is costing far more than they thought. They've got a very, very good, young, mainly progressive, expansive footballing team on the pitch. They've got two ways they can go. One, they can go forward and invest, which is probably not the way Daniel Levy's looking at it. And by the briefing Duncan had regarding transfer policy, it's certainly not the way he's looking at it. Or they can lose the totem of what they've got right now, i.e. their manager and his coaching staff, and go down that route regardless and see how, where it takes them. I think it's a, this is a, a seminal moment in the history of Tottenham Hotspur, certainly the, the modern history of that club with regards to what they can do. I've got, listen, I, I have no reason to believe, and I don't think we should doubt that he's being disingenuous. We should, uh, sorry, assume he's being disingenuous. Maybe Pochettino does want to stay for 20 years, but what he needs is the backup of his chairman and the club to make him a trophy-winning coach. And that's what we're seeing now. So... Um, the next six months will be the most important, I think, in the modern history of the club in terms of what they do regarding the manager and what they do regarding the transfer because they're clearly not going to sign any players in this window. In fact, I'm told they're looking to offload four or five players who are in the 25-man squad 
And indeed, uh, Moussa Dembele, I think, has agreed a, a deal to go to China already. And then they're looking at um, offloading Wanyama as well. Uh, Christian Eriksen is someone who uh, is refusing to negotiate a new deal unless they offer him what he, he wants. And he's got interest from Barcelona and Real Madrid. So, again, um, this is a huge, huge moment for Spurs. And they need to find a clear and... Uh, I think positive way forward because if they don't, then they could go back. You know, they could re- they could regress ten years, never mind five. Uh, pre Mauricio Pochettino. Just a, okay. just a couple a couple of quick points on that. Um, I don't think it's impossible they bring someone in, um, but that will the only way they bring someone in. I'm told is if they offload. And I, as as I said in that column, they're looking to offload about eight players over the next two windows, uh, including guys like Dembele, as you mentioned. Um, I think given the given the way we opened this podcast, we should say that perhaps that strategy that, that Levy has devised uh, in combination with his recruitment staff isn't so terrible these days um, if, you, if you're concentrating on younger players um, and, and players like Hudson-Odoi and, and Jadon Sancho um, are able to perform in the fashion that Sancho has proved he can at Dortmund. Um, possibly that's not a bad way to go if you manage to get the right ones at the right price. But I'd be surprised if if, if Tottenham were, you know, would be able to compete with someone like Bayern Munich. So in, in, in another sense, it makes it harder for them that the Madrids, um, the Dortmund, they can take on financially. But once Madrids and Bayern Munich are going after that category of players, it becomes harder to follow that strategy. And it, just a final thing is, the comparison with Wenger to um, Pochettino is important here, but we, you've got to remember that Wenger pushed for the stadium at Arsenal. It was his project. He saw correctly that for Arsenal to retain their status long-term at the top of English football, they would need the stadium and need the revenue from it. And he pushed the board for that to happen. Therefore, he felt an obligation to suffer the pain um, of changing transfer strategy, uh, working with younger players, um, having less money to spend on the team as a result of that stadium. Pochettino, while in favour of the stadium, it's not his project. It's not something he's gone to Daniel Levy and said, well, uh, the only way this club is going to be a European champion down the line, Premier League champion, is if you built me a stadium. Um, That's a project initiated by Levy, initiated by the owners, and um, I think there's a big question mark over whether that's about actually about winning the Premier League and actually about winning the European Cup from the Tottenham owner's point of view or about increasing the value of the club um, in the, in the, with the idea of selling the club to another buyer and giving them like a, a pre-packaged club which is Champions League uh, entrant and has uh, the biggest or one of the biggest uh, stadiums in London, all built for you. Here you go, come and add your cash to it, and uh, and you can really go for for the the top seat in in English and, and European football. Well, from one no nonsense executive and Daniel Levy to another in Chelsea's Marina Graniskaya, uh, she's a woman with increasing influence, and this has been manifested in the bizarre sight of. Cesc Fabregas's tearful farewell on Saturday against Nottingham Forest uh, to Stamford Bridge. And the news that now Chelsea are actually looking for a fee and won't let the player go potentially until they get a replacement in, Ian. Yeah, I, to be fair, six months on his contract and the, the fact that he earns a lot of money at Chelsea 
um, around £265,000 per week, Johnny, means that <clears throat> there, there would always be a fee involved unless the, the, the club effect, effectively comped him out of the, the, uh, his contract, which um, you know, isn't normal practice. But Marina Grafskaya is, is, is known to be a very hard negotiator. She has controlled Chelsea transfer policy for a good 10 years now. Not controlled, but she's had increasing control of Chelsea's transfer policy for a good, for a good 10 years. And it's um, becoming more and more the case um, with managers who are uh, more willing to accept uh, that she is the boss rather than them. And we know that um, Maritz Wasari in terms of um, negotiations, for instance, like the one which uh, saw Christian Pulisic sign a contract uh, with Chelsea this month, but be loaned back before joining um, full-time in the summer. <clears throat> that was something that Sari was basically made aware of rather than consulted upon, uh, despite the fact he's been in job six months. But um, the Fabregas one is, is interesting in the sense that um, the player himself... I'm told, um, believed that everything had been agreed with the club and that indeed his transfer to Monaco was um, plain sailing, um, especially in a, a, a port as lovely as that, forgive the pun, and um, then was told yesterday morning that he should not travel to Monaco um, to sort out personal arrangements, and by that I mean a house, Etc. Because that's how far down the line he believed things were, um, because not only had um, a fee not been agreed, but despite Sari having publicly said in a press conference that Fabregas should leave because um, he needs to play football, he's thirty-one and he doesn't fit into Sari's style of play. That in fact, Grasscore has now said, "Well, no, you can't leave until we find sign a replacement." Now. When you think about that in terms of the football department at Chelsea, you have to say, well, who exactly is managing this club? Because Munogravskaya is, historically, Ronald Bramford's personal assistant. And she has, you know, been put into Chelsea to um, administrate there and has been there, I think, some 13, 14 years now. But as we've, you know, charted before in the Transfer Window podcast and we, we've said now... Her influence has increased and increased to the point where she is uh, not just chief executive, but effectively runs all aspects of the football club uh, in terms of recruitment and sales. So um, I'm not doubting her ability to drive a good deal or indeed the advice she receives regarding recruitment or sales either in terms of um, players incoming uh, or outgoing. But when she effectively... Um, contradicts the manager and says this player can't be sold until we find a replacement. That seems a little odd. A little odd. <clears throat> it seems also seems a little odd to me that you know they've been quoted forty five million pounds for Barea from Cagliari, um, a player who uh, won uh, Young Player of the Year in Italy uh, two years running in um, twelve thirteen and thirteen fourteen, but has actually not improved. Uh, to any significant uh, point uh, be, uh, since then, uh, he's still playing at Cagliari, not a you know elite club, not a club to who you would say are um, you'd be recruiting players from unless they were young and very good. So that we're talking four years ago, he was young player of the year. 
but being quoted quite a hefty price for him. Um, so it, it, it's also a bit murky to me, or not murky, but muddy, certainly. And I'm not sure that Sari, who is kind of no-nonsense in his approach to these things, might be best pleased at the way this has been handled because he's been made to look a bit of a fool, given his public comments and then what uh, how things have transpired since. Just a little story about Granovskaya, um, because we're talking about when she took control of transfers. Um, she was directly involved in Fernando Torres's move um, from Liverpool, which is going back a long time. David Luiz's, she played a, a, an important role in David Luiz's transfer. Um, in 2011, I wrote a story saying that she was going to replace Ron Gourley as chief executive. Um, and that my sources were telling me she'd effectively been working as chief executive for, for quite a period um, when I wrote that story um, uh, on the basis that uh, when people wanted to talk about transfers, they went to uh, Granovskaya rather than Ron Gourley, who was the, the, the titular chief executive at the time. Um, when I... Uh, put that story out, um, Chelsea came down on me like a ton of bricks and uh, basically said, if you if you if your paper runs that, um, we'll sue them for libel um, because her, I, th I think because she was um, Abramovich's personal assistant at the time and the idea that she was going to be promoted to chief executive and I think, I, I may be wrong, but one the first chief executive, female chief executive of a Premier League club, or certainly the second. Because um, yeah, it would have been um, Karen Brady, first of all. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly when she started the Premier League, but yeah, probably Karen Brady preceded, him, preceded her. Um, but, you know, the idea of someone moving from PA to chief executive of a football club wasn't a good um, PR look. Um, so the story didn't get run um, by... Uh, my English paper at the time um, uh, but Marina kept on doing what Ian has been describing her as doing and doing it very efficiently and, and in fact um, as, as we've talked about uh, Chelsea haven't spent much money in the transfer market in terms of net spend for many years uh, they developed this policy of, of stockpiling good uh, European players, good worldwide players with or quite often with no intention of putting them in the first team themselves, but kind of training them up, loaning them out, and then selling them at a profit. It's worked very well, been very effective, and been copied by other clubs, such as Manchester City. But lo and behold, um, I'm not sure the exact timing, but not much longer after that, Ron Gourley departed the club, and um, Marina Granovskia did, in, in fact, become... She wasn't given the title of chief executive, but she became the effective chief executive of the club. So it's just a little um, indicator of how uh, how journalism can work in in um, in the UK at times, and when clubs really don't want a story to come out, um, how they can use uh, the libel law in the UK to basically scare um, newspapers off running those stories. Well, a story that you have, Duncan, at the moment is in Pepe going back to Porto from Besiktas. Now, people might wonder, well, what's the news there? But it's more about what that potentially means for another star name that we've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah, this this is interesting in a couple of ways. Um, Pepe's been at Besiktas for, I think, 18 months. Um, he had his contract cancelled in December. Um as one of several top European stars 
uh, playing in Turkey who's who's either been allowed to leave their club or has been made available in this window at a cheap price because um, the Turkish currency has devalued significantly against the euro in the in the past year. Um, most of these players, if not all of them, are paid. Um, their contracts are denominated in euros, so they, they, they have to be paid a net euro sum per month would be a typical way to structure it. And because the, the Turkish currency is devalued, um, the actual cost to the Turkish clubs has spiralled upwards, so they're trying to move them off their books. Um, Pep is likely um, to go back to Porto. Um, his uh, initial club, where he, he started that um, litany of, of success in, in European and world football. Um, a player who um, actually has been courted by Premier League clubs on many occasions and I think was quite close to going to um, both Manchester United and Manchester City at, at different times, but the deals never happened. Um, but what I'm told is he could be coming into Porto to allow them not just an option in defence, but cover were they to get uh, the money they expect or were someone to buy out um, Edder Militown's contract in the January window. Militown's got a 50 million euro release clause, um, which is considered to be quite low, um, given how well he's done in his first half season in European football. He was the player, as, as we um, talked about and broke the story on, on the podcast um, a couple of months ago as a player who'd been scouted by top clubs in Europe um, last summer but Porto had been prepared to take him out of Sao Paulo um, and obviously the top clubs have continued to scout him, they're now watching him play Champions League claims and, uh, and play for Porto at the top of the, the Portuguese league and they like even more what they see and now he's in Europe he's taken that step, he's, he's He's entered that adaptation process, which can be quite difficult for South Americans. Um, they like his speed. They like the simplicity of his game. They like his physique. And it seems clear that um, he won't be much longer at Porto. If it doesn't happen in this window, I would expect it to happen in the summer for sure, barring um, a very bad injury on the part of the player. Manchester United remain interested in him. Um, he was a player that Mourinho proposed as an alternative to Koulibaly. Um, Mourinho obviously wanted an experienced, ready-made defender, but was saying it said to the club, if you want to do a younger player, this is the one I recommend. I think Chelsea are also interested. Um, and I think Chelsea have a good relationship with um, some of the players' representatives, which might help facilitate a move. And I think Madrid are also interested in him at present. So... Let's see if it happens in January, but um, I would definitely have money on him on leaving Porto uh, before the start of next season. That's significant as well uh, in terms of um, Manchester United. Uh, there was a meeting, um, albeit mostly by video um, connection uh, with the Glazers and Ed Woodward uh, last week, where the discussion was, do we invest in January? Um, in order to maintain the Solskjaer feel-good factor uh, and keep faith with Manchester United fans who obviously have responded positively to the interim manager's um, appointment and the performance of the team since then. And from For, Form hear, that was predicted on the transfer window, I think, Ian? Indeed, indeed. But from what I hear, uh, Johnny, that, that, that the... Um, 
the answer was yes, we should invest and we should we should uh, at least make this um, make it possible for Solskjaer very, very slim. But I think at this point, any kind of um, uh, trophy success, whether it be FA Cup and or uh, I suppose outside Champions League, but also the fact that they can get in top four then would maintain, I think, what has been a fairly fractious relationship between the Glazers and um, the fans in recent months and probably the last couple of years. So I, th- I think that it, we can expect to see money uh, put in uh, Solskjaer's pocket to spend. And I think uh, Miratao would be someone who clearly, having scouted him and having um, effectively sourced him as a potential signing in the position which they absolutely need to recruit in, then would it be that? Outrageous to see him come in January. I don't think it would. I think um, I think certainly uh, people around Jose Mourinho uh, would not be surprised if money, significant money, is spent in this window. Um, ironically, after Mourinho had, uh, <laughs> as you said earlier, Ian, without mentioning by name, gone to war uh, with the, the club to try and force them um, to buy in the summer, um, and they'd refused to reinforce in that position. Um, what I'm hearing is that they are ready to do it for the right player. And obviously, the big change at Manchester United is um, they now have control of transfer policy back. So they don't have to fight with the manager and say, um, you know, we'd like to buy a younger player with development potential um, and have the manager say, no, what you need is a ready-made, or what I need, what the team needs is a ready-made player to go straight in. Um, we don't need more more development players. So, um, in a sense, Mourinho leaving has, has opened it up for them. Um, I think in two ways. One, uh, they don't have to worry about signing a player and Mourinho doing well off the back of it and then them being stuck with Mourinho into another season, which I think by the time he'd gone, that was, that was a consideration for them. But also in the sense that they can do what they want to do in, in the window without having to fight with the manager. Um, Solskjaer wants the job on a permanent basis. Um, he's not going to uh, start demanding transfers um, as he determines them at this stage um, while he's trying to convince the Glazers that they can save a whole lot of money on um, hiring someone like uh, Maurizio Pochettino by giving him the job long term. Okay, well, it's now time for the legendary quickfire round. And this week, we're going to look at big-name players at big clubs who might be on the verge, potentially, of a January move. So, first name is to Duncan, and it's, adopts Steve McLaren accent, Frankie Dojong. <laughs> but even by McLaren's standards, that was dreadful, Johnny. Who, who's he, Johnny? <laughs> I don't even know what that was. He's I'm not going to... Young, yeah? Frankie de Young. That's much better. Shrimp and a pancake. Yeah. <laughs> um, de Young at Ajax, if that's who you're referring to, um, <laughs> could, well be mo- could well be moving in this window. Um, as we talked about uh, a couple of months ago, um, Ajax know that the player's going to move um, either this window or the summer. They are simply trying to get the maximum out of the deal possible. Um, if they get a really big offer in this window that De Jong accepts, and that's the key here, um, then 
they will take that money. Um, as we talked about, they, they were mooting a price of 100 million euros for De Jong. I believe they have an offer of 75 million um, from PSG for him. Um, Barcelona have been very interested. Manchester City are very interested. Um, essentially, the top clubs in Europe um, have been having a look and seeing whether they can do it. Um, it was the case that De Jong's preference uh, was Barcelona. It seems that Paris Saint-Germain have put themselves in a good position in that they have put the money down on the table to Ajax, uh, which is in the region of what they would accept um, and can work and are working on convincing the player to, to move to them. Um, and obviously finances from from personal terms point of view are not going to be a problem for PSG uh, with their Qatar cash mountain um, that they invest into into that team um, every single window. Um, and Barcelona do have issues. Um, Barcelona are trying to do um, trying to do things cheaper because their wage bill is immense at present. And while their um, revenues are growing um, at a great rate, um, the the accelerating size uh, of that wage bill is something they have to take account of, which has given PSG that, that access in there. Ian Aaron Ramsey. Well, with Aaron Ramsey out of contract six months' time, um, it's inevitable now that he will leave Arsenal. Um, we know that the Arsenal themselves desisted all and ceased all contract talks with him and his representatives uh, some months ago. Um, this is a complicated one in the sense that Juventus are definitely front runners uh, to sign him. There have been at least three meetings between. Um, Ramsey's um, agent and uh, representative of Juventus. They're very keen to get him. They know that they're getting a player who otherwise would cost them in excess of 50 million euros uh, for free. He's 28, prime of his career. Um, he scores goals. He's box to box. He's he's you know the all-round midfielder. However, I'm told that there is a slight reticence with Ramsey to sign a contract now. Let's you know, we should explain that. Um, Premier League rules uh, legislate that a player uh, currently <laughs> registered with a Premier League club or an indeed a, a, a club of the FA can sign a pre-contract agreement in January or any time after January to when their contract expires to join a club as of June the 1st in, in terms of this year, 2019. Um, however, um, it doesn't mean to say that um, the player needs to sign in January. He can actually wait until other offers come in. What he can't do is sign a pre-contract with another English club. Now, Aaron Ramsey has a family. He has um, roots in England. Uh, obviously, he's a Welsh national and a Welsh national team player. Um, and he may prefer to wait to see if there are any interest from other clubs and so that he can st remain in England. Um, so far, there has been a, a small amount of interest, certainly phone calls made, uh, on behalf of both Chelsea uh, and Manchester City. Um, and even Liverpool have expressed an interest, albeit um, just one of, you know, a note of interest, let's keep us informed of what's going on. So it's far from being decided. However, the offer from Juventus is such, in terms of financial terms, very lucrative. And it may well be the case that by the time the transfer window closes, he does sign that pre-contract with Juventus. 
so whatever happens, he won't be moving in January. I don't think that's very unlikely. But certainly, I think his future will be decided either by the end of this transfer window or probably just a little bit after it in terms of if there's any interest otherwise from English clubs. If the quickfire is supposed to be Aaron Robin at his peak, uh, you're very much John Terry, aged 35, Ian. <laughs> Slow. <laughs> The quick fire, for God's sake. This is why it's legendary. Duncan, Duncan's legendary, please. Slow. Why am I being picked on? Sorry, Ian. Uh, new, new Year resolution is to be even, take even longer in the quick fire round than I do. Is that it, Ian? Probably, yeah. Duncan, on to you and Omar Niasi. Yeah, this um, Niasi is hot stuff in the Premier League at the moment, despite hardly um, having any game time this season at Everton, just 58 minutes of Premier League football. And the reason is, um, as always happens in the Premier League in the January window um, and the summer window, to be fair, but particularly in the January window, the clubs in danger of relegation um, desperately want someone to score goals. Um, They usually don't have a lot of money to play with. um, So they're looking for loan signings. And um, Niasse ticks the boxes in that he's a proven Premier League goal scorer. Um, He scored 8 in 22 games for Everton last season but only had 10 starts and was averaging a goal every 135 minutes scored goals for Hull City um, previously Um, and he's fancied by a lot of clubs Um, so Huddersfield have have had the tickle Uh, Crystal Palace are very much interested Um, I believe Brighton have an interest in the player Cardiff City um, also Newcastle United Um, Niasi is very open to a move because he's not getting football at Everton and he wants to be playing. Um, so he, he has um, 18 months left in his contract. Uh, the idea would be essentially to put himself in the shop window um, and uh, score goals for the second half of the season, help whichever club he's at, um, get higher up the table and then maybe look at, at, at staying with them um, into next season or see if he does really well whether um, he can convince Everton um, to reinstate him uh, and in terms of their, their pecking order or one of the, the, the bigger clubs, um, sort of a top half Premier League club, would be tempted into to buying him. So I'd be very surprised if Niasse is still at Everton at the end of this window. Um, and it's, it's more a process of him choosing... Uh, where he wants to go and what the offers will be to Everton in terms of loan fees. Um, Perhaps Everton would prefer a sale at this stage if they can get it. The problem with that, of course, is that those clubs down at the bottom uh, don't really have the money to spend on sales. Reading the next chapter of War and Peace is Leo Tolstoy with Paolo Dybala. Thank you very much. Um, War and Peace in our time. Um, I think with Dybala, it's more likely to be peace, Johnny. Um, Dybala is obviously highly rated, but um, at this moment in time, I think what's interesting is he represents really good value in this current market. Juventus are marketing him actively uh, to other clubs at a price of around €90 million, Euros, which when you think about a player of his dynamic ability, his age, the, the fact he's proven himself in terms of winning league titles, etc., etc., I think that's fairly good value. Um, he himself would prefer move to Spain. Um, he's... I think being fairly obvious and saying he'd like to go to Real Madrid. However, um, England obviously represents a very um, big financial gain for him as a as a person. And Manchester City, Chelsea, and um, Manchester United would be interested in the player. 
I don't expect him to leave in January, but I know that negotiations are are beginning with regards to a move in the summer, and that also will um, balance up Juventus's books because they are currently interested in players at Aaron Ramsey, as we've spoken about, but also other players as well. So um, clearly, they think Dybala is expendable as a, a player in order to balance their books. Uh, Duncan, Adrian Rabio. I thought you were going to ask me about the uh, the fleet of lawnmowers that, that Liverpool are trying to buy to secure the uh, <laughs> title. Well, that's that's actually an interesting one. Perhaps we should go there immediately. Yeah, what what do you make of that? I, I thought I think it's hilarious that um, that uh, the story is put out that Manchester City deliberately kept their the the grass long on their pitch to uh, to stop the the all conquering um, Liverpool side uh, from from going ten points ahead. In, in the table, and I, I see Guardiola was asked about it in, the, in his press conference today, and said, "You know, of course that didn't happen. I don't speak uh, to the, the ground staff about how the pitch should be um, before games." And I, and I think the reason he doesn't speak to the ground staff on how the pitch should be is the ground staff know um, he wants the pitch short and he wants it watered and he wants it fast. Why does he want it that way? Because they're the best passing team in the division, and passing sides want uh, the grass to run. Um, and the, the, the idea that they, um, they deliberately chose um, to go against that um, when they had to play Liverpool is just ridiculous. In fact, if you look at the statistics in the game, um, it, it was Manchester City who hit more accurate passes and um, hit fewer long passes than Liverpool. So, um, yeah, uh, well, I, I, I await um, the next uh, uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, should Liverpool drop more points in in the Premier League eagerly? Ian, what did you make of all this? Um, well, I, I I agree with Duncan that, that Guardiola doesn't have to speak to the ground staff regarding the grass length. I think we should also though factor in that um, Jose Mourinho prides himself. Um, and has done for many years on speaking to the ground staff about how long the grass should be for different teams um, coming to play his teams. So it's a factor, and it's something which I wholly endorse, to be quite honest. If you can gain any advantage, whether it's 1% or 5%, which is under your control, let's face it, um, You know when uh, the England cricket team go abroad to play uh, matches, whether it's the Ashes or in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, um, New Zealand... The pitch is prepared by the home team, as the way same way as it's prepared by um, the groundsmen in England cricket grounds as well. So you should take advantage of that. But in this case, I think it was a little bit over the top to suggest that um, somehow Manchester City had, uh, I don't know, invoked the dark arts of grass cutting in order that they were disadvantaged because you've got two teams who play the same way. And uh, obviously, short grass was advantageous just as much to City as it was to Liverpool. Just a, just a little, st- little final story on the length of the grass, which comes from our good friend, uh, Graham Hunter. Um, I remember meeting him on the eve of uh, Spain's first game in the 2010 World Cup and him telling me how uh, the Spanish were upset at the grass in the, in the stadium they were playing. I think it was Durban was their, their first match um, and had been petitioning FIFA to have the grass uh, cut shorter and and watered um, before the game and at half time, and telling them if you want better football, set the pitch up that way, and we'll we'll play better football. And and I think uh, they actually through the the course of that tournament they succeeded 
and getting FIFA to do what they wanted um, with the pitches. And of course, that was their first World Cup win, um, was the 2010 World Cup. So it, it can make a difference and it particularly makes a difference to teams um, like Spain who are focused on passing, like Manchester City are. It wouldn't be the transfer window podcast and it wouldn't be the quickfire round if we took a meander. But Duncan, we're still waiting on Adrian Rabio. Um, yeah, Rabio has uh, quite a brave man, actually, or a brave man and a brave mother in that they have refused um, Paris Saint-Germain' um, insistence that he stay at the club um, and sign a new contract. And that actually uh, is is quite rare. Um, there, there have been other players who have... Um, uh, tried to um, get out of the, the Qatar project and have been lent on heavily um, when the club didn't want them to leave. And, and Rabio and his, his mother have stuck to their guns and said, we are going to run this contract down. Um, and they've got into January and they've agreed um, terms with Barcelona, um, club that's been pursuing them for a long time. Obviously, uh, we'll get a, a substantial um, signing on fee from Barcelona and substantial wages and I, I think um, assuming this goes through assuming he goes goes through with his pre-contract which he, he should do and, and I think um, PSG will make him wait to the, the, the summer to move I think it's a very astute um, signing from Barcelona because he's a player who has been on the list of a lot of clubs for a long time um, I know for example Manchester United have um, scouted him extensively and, and thought about him as, as, a, as a midfield um, reinforcement. I know Juventus has been very keen on the player um, and I think he's, he is a top talent um, who will um, add a, a different dimension to Barcelona's midfield play um, next season. And Ian, finish us off with Denis Suarez. Well, again, um, Duncan mentioned before that um, Barcelona have to uh, reduce their wage bill. Um, I think that's significant in terms of what happens in this window and indeed in the summer to come. Uh, Suarez is a player who has been on the fringe of things for the club. Um, He travelled to the last game uh, but didn't feature in the matchday squad of 18. Uh, He's been heavily linked with Arsenal. I think that he's a player who um, Unai Emery covets very much. He played a season uh, at Sevilla when Emery was there. And if a fee can be agreed, and at this moment in time, the fee has not been agreed, then um, I think it's very likely that Suarez will end up at Arsenal. I have to say that you look at Arsenal's squad and you think to yourself, do they need another you know, relatively small, tricksy winger uh, to add um, or augment the, the, the playing squad they have already? And I would say, well, yes, because Suarez gives you something different. He can play across... Um, the attacking midfield three, he can play as a false nine if he needs to. And um, he will give certainly assists, if not some substantial goal chances as well to um, an Arsenal team which needs to improve that. So I think there's a good chance that Suarez will move this, this window and it will be to Arsenal. OK, guys, I think we should call it a day there. We've uh, delivered an entertaining, interesting and completely mad, uninhibited what, what podcast. What was the mad bit? <laughs> Mostly me, to be honest. But uh, with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. So give us a follow there. If you want to speak to us directly, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and much, much, much more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SG. 
If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us one of those five-star reviews that we've been getting recently. This helps us get to as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 4pm. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>